one church denomination official website has a frequently asked questions page. And of course, I gravitate toward some doctrinal questions. And the one I went to was, what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be saved? What a great question. So I looked at the answer, and it talked about giving up selfish desires and pursuits so that you can allow God to be part of your life. I like that phrase, allow God to be part of your life. And the author said, quote, when God becomes a part of our lives, we realize that a focus on self is not a full life. We understand that self-focus alone has no future and offers nothing to build up anyone else or to advance the great causes of humanity. The author talks about turning away from what he calls destructive elements, and he gives a list like drugs, sexual immorality, intolerance, a lust for power, and other things. He goes on to say, being saved means that we have awakened to the wondrous opportunities to share each day with our brothers and sisters and to see what God is doing in our lives together. It is a time to begin to evaluate your lives, to take stock, to find ways to improve your lives. It is a wake-up call. We believe that being saved is, in essence, God's wake-up call to us. I found that warm. I found it a heartfelt explanation of what it means to be saved. And unfortunately, I found it utterly false. It was completely a lie. It's a deception of the worst kind because it deceives people into a false sense of security. The, the vital question that the author doesn't answer is this. Destructive elements. And he says in parentheses, which Christians call sin. No, God calls them sin. But he doesn't answer the question. If you turn away from these sins, fine, who's going to pay for the ones you've already committed? That's not, that, that doesn't just go away. God isn't going to try desperately to become part of your life. God is trying to take your life. He's a righteous judge. If you had committed crime after crime after crime and appeared before a judge, do you think that you could just say, you know what, Your Honor, from, from now on, I'm never going to do those things again. And do you think the judge is going to say, oh, goody, I'm so glad have a nice day. No, justice must be served. The judge would say, that's wonderful, but who's going to pay for the crimes? The author's definition of salvation is a recipe for spiritual disaster, and it bears no resemblance to the real gospel of Jesus Christ as presented in Scripture. There's no resemblance at all. The gospel of salvation from sin is focused first and foremost on the central feature of the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. We're going to look once again at Isaiah 53. You don't have to turn there unless you want to. But Isaiah 53, we've been examining this chapter over the past few weeks. It's a very well-known Old Testament text which speaks prophetically with pinpoint accuracy about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And this account was written 700 years before the birth of Christ, and it's so stunningly precise concerning Christ's death that the New Testament references this passage about 30 times. And you don't have to have been here over the past weeks to understand what I'm going to say tonight, but just in case you haven't been here, over the past few weeks we've taken this passage apart by theme, and so we've sort of skipped around to different verses. 
And some of the themes we've looked at, first we looked at the atonement given by the suffering Savior, that Jesus Christ stepped in as the perfect substitute to pay the penalty of sin, which is owed to God because of our rebellion against him. We looked at the sorrow of the suffering Savior, that Jesus suffered as a human being, as a prophet, as a king, as a son. And we looked at the justification given by the suffering Savior. What is justification? That is that Christ was credited with your sin so that you could be credited with his righteousness and stand pure before God, washed clean of all sin and all guilt. And so tonight, as we recall the crucifixion of Christ, we want to examine the theme of the death of Christ, the death that he endured to fulfill the Father's plan to offer salvation to the world. God is holy. He is pure. He is not a Santa Claus-type figure who will just wink at sin. He doesn't just transfer you from the naughty list to the nice list. There has to be payment. Sin is a, a critical, a grave offense against God. And it demands payment. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. God cannot be just if he simply decided not to deal with sin any more than we would think that a judge was just who decided to let a criminal go free. And yet God in his love, he desires worshipers. He desires to create worshipers, and he does this by creating worshipers from sinners. And so as the most well-known verse in the Bible says, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so God would satisfy his perfect righteous justice by pouring his wrath out on Jesus Christ, the pure and perfect substitute, and he would sacrifice himself for that justice. And then God would satisfy his perfect love by freely offering to all who would repent of their sin to apply that payment to our account that we could be rendered innocent, we could be rendered pure, we could be rendered righteous, we could be rendered blameless before God. Now, we've read this entire text each time we consider a portion of it. Tonight, we'll just look at three verses together concerning the death of Christ. But listen to the entire passage and I'm beginning in chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and, and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one. 
to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death, And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. My basic point tonight is that Jesus received what you deserve. Jesus received what I deserve. That's the heart of the gospel. Now before we really get into this text, what do we deserve? What do you deserve? What do I deserve? First of all, you deserve to be treated as a fool. To be treated as a fool. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. You might say, Well, I believe in God. Really? We haven't acted like it lately. Because if you truly believe in God, the biblical definition of believing in God is to quit sinning. Which is a problem because Psalm 14 says, There is no one who does good. So-called good deeds are offensive to God. Because good deeds are just a a cover-up for sinful deeds. It's like murdering somebody, planting his body, and then planting roses on top. It doesn't cover anything. In the Old Testament, the fool is a Hebrew word which means the godless one, the worthless one, the futile one, the good-for-nothing one, the unbelieving one. You deserve to be treated as a fool. You and I both deserved also to be condemned as a lawbreaker. You deserve to be condemned as a lawbreaker. You might say, well, I don't practice any of those sins. I I, I don't sin that much. I'm a pretty good person. Well, the question then is, is how good do you have to be to receive God's favor? Jesus said in Matthew 5, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God And James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails once has become guilty of all of it. One time. You deserve to be treated as a fool. You deserve to be condemned as a lawbreaker. And you deserve to be excluded from God's kingdom. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, the Apostle Paul gives a list of those who will be excluded from eternal life. Those excluded from participation in the kingdom of God. Here is his God-inspired list. 
He says, quote, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, those are abusers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Listen, you can try the political correctness away that list all you want. God doesn't care. God's standard is based on his own holiness, not based on the latest prevailing political winds. Why would he care what sinful mankind thinks about holiness? So how did we do? Well, you did the same as I did. We failed miserably because you deserve to be treated as a fool. You deserve to be condemned as a lawbreaker. And you deserve to be excluded from God's kingdom. You deserve to have happen what's recorded in Revelation 20, that a book with your name on it, which contains everything you've ever done against God, every sinful thought, every sinful word, every sinful deed you've ever committed, you deserve to have these read in the courts of heaven. And the voice of Jesus Christ will proclaim, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, if you're thinking, this is bad news, you're right. And if you're here for the first time, you're, you're probably saying, I didn't come here to hear this. I didn't come to hear bad news. I, I wanted to be told, hang in there, you can do it. My message tonight is, you can't hang in there and you can't do it. But there is good news. The good news is that Jesus stepped in. As the fury of God's wrath was hurtling toward you, toward your life, as the arrows of the bow of his judgment were flying earthward towards you. And as you looked up and you saw the wrath of God coming right at you, Jesus Christ stepped in between you and God. And he took all of it instead of you. And that's what I'd like to focus upon this evening. I'd like to just very simply show you three ways that Jesus stepped in front of God's wrath for you. Three ways he stepped in front of God's wrath. First, Jesus was beaten as you deserved. Jesus was beaten as you deserved. Chapter 52, verse 14 says, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. This is a shocking statement. Jesus was, was beaten and battered not just beyond recognizing that he was Jesus, but beyond recognizing that he was a human being. He was beaten to a pulp, quite literally. He, he was beaten into this, this bloody mess. He breathed his last on a cross in a body that the most modern emergency room technicians and technology could never have resuscitated. The pericardium, which encases the heart, had been pierced by a Roman spear with blood and water just pouring out of his body, out the wound in Jesus' side. In fact, it's very poignant that for a moment, God, who is speaking here of Christ in the third person, speaking of him as if he's speaking to us about him, that he shall be high and lifted up. Chapter 52, verse 13, for a moment, he turns to Christ and he, directs him, he, he addresses him directly as many were astonished at you. Now the question is, who are the many that are astonished at Christ, astonished at the disfigurement, the tremendous suffering of the Lord Jesus? In verse 15 of chapter 52, God speaks of atoning for the sins of many nations. 
here in verse 14, many is a theologically specific word referring to all who would believe in him, that they, that is we, are astonished at what had to happen for Christ to pay for your sin. This wasn't just God saying, I think I'll just move you over from the naughty list to the nice list. We're astonished at what had to happen to Jesus. And there's this, there's this tension that we always experience as those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the tension of thankfulness for the sacrifice of Christ, because without it, we can't be saved. And yet, on the other hand, there's, there's horror and there's shock and there's disgust at what he had to go through. And it hurts our pride that he did it for us. Mark 14 records a grateful, forgiven woman anointing Jesus' head with costly oil. And Jesus explained, she's done a beautiful thing to me. She anointed my body beforehand for burial. This is that tension because this is a woman celebrating her forgiveness. And yet she's apparently cognizant of what that forgiveness will cost. It will cost the life of Christ. So why is the beating of Jesus so important for us to understand, so important for us to not skip over, so important for us to, to highlight? Because he was receiving what a fool, a godless one, a worthless one, a futile one, a good-for-nothing one, an unbelieving one, he was receiving what a fool deserves. Proverbs 19.29 says, Condemnation is ready for scoffers and beating for the backs of fools. And so he took what we deserved. He was beaten as you deserved. There's another way Jesus stepped in front of God's wrath for you. He was humiliated as you deserved. He was humiliated as you deserved. His humiliation began in earnest when he was arrested. Chapter 53, verse 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Oppressed means to be driven, means to be pressed. It means to exact a price. But this particular verb form is what's called a reflexive verb form. It, it, it means that the, the, the subject is doing something to himself or for himself. When he was oppressed, it means that Christ offered himself to be oppressed. He did this on purpose. Verse 8 says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Oppression here is a different Hebrew word. It's a completely different word. And it means to be restrained. It means to be held back. It means to be bound. It can speak even of being imprisoned. And it could be that these were the restraints used on Jesus to take him to his first trial. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Listen, this wasn't a, a fair fight. This wasn't a fair trial. He was already prejudged. The outcome of the trial was a foregone conclusion. When Jesus was arrested, he was already condemned. There had already, for many, many months, been a conspiracy to murder Jesus. Matthew 26, 4 says, they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and give him a fair trial. Is that what it says? No, it says to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Matthew 17, Jesus said, that's exactly what's going to happen. He's going to be arrested, turned over to men, and he would die. And so that night of that final Passover, you recall that Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is a place he had been to with his disciples many times. It was the obvious choice of the place for Judas to find Jesus. And so when Judas came with the temple guard, Jesus went forward to meet them. And he said, according to John's gospel, whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. 
Jesus said, I am he. And the entire arresting party, they all fell to the ground. The point was that Jesus was demonstrating, you can arrest me if I let you. He asked them again as they were getting up and dusting themselves off, whom do you seek? Again, they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I told you, I am he. And he told the soldiers to let his disciples go. And so to identify Jesus, Judas came forward to give him a kiss of greeting. But as Judas was coming forward to kiss Jesus, Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus spoke first. And before they were together, Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? He already knew what was going to happen. He's the sovereign God, after all. But Judas went on with the charade, and he said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed Jesus on the cheek per custom. And Jesus told him, Friend, do what you came to do, according to Matthew 26. Jesus just stood there. The temple guard with clubs and swords, they seized Jesus. Now Peter got a little bit excited, and he drew a sword, and he cut off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant. It didn't really start much of a battle, though. Basically, his ear fell off. He probably said, ow. And that's kind of all that happened. Jesus said no more of this in Luke 22. He touched Malchus's ear, and interestingly, the very last healing that Jesus ever performed on earth was for one of his enemies. He told Peter, put your sword back. Don't you know that I could ask my father and he would send more than 12 legions of angels? He told Peter that the scripture must be fulfilled. Jesus turned to the arresting party, according to Matthew or Mark 14, rather. And he said to them, have you come out against me as like a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching. Did you you didn't seize me? But let the scriptures be fulfilled. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus practically had to orchestrate this. He had to choreograph this. Okay, you guys, you're the ones who are supposed to arrest me. Disciples, put your swords away. Don't do that. Okay, on the count of three, everybody just be okay and arrest me. And he sort of had to make this happen. He had to mediate between his own men and the arresting party. So when someone reads in Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed, a reflexive verb meaning that he offered himself willingly and then they read the gospel accounts of the arrest of jesus this is clearly the messiah spoken of here in isaiah 53 how humiliating that they would bind his hands they would they would bind him as isaiah 53 seems to indicate here the hands which miraculously made bread and fish multiply for thousands of people the hands which touched the eyes of the blind and healed them, the hands which touched the ears of the deaf and healed them, the hands which gestured as he gave the words of life in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the same hands which held eager children in his lap. How did Jesus handle his arrest? Yet he opened not his mouth, Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now, this is a clear reference to the Passover lamb. The helpless little one-year-old lamb offered by the Israelites with its blood sprinkled on the doorposts of their homes in Egypt the night that the Lord would strike the firstborn of all of Egypt. The Israelites were spared this disaster because of the sacrifice of the lamb in place of the firstborn of the family. 
But there's a big difference between the Passover lamb and Jesus. John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God. Here's the difference. The the little Passover lamb was taken into the home for several days. A little one-year-old, it's innocent, it's cute, and for several days it would essentially become like the family pet. They had no idea that it was being sacrificed so it could relax, it could live out normal days. Until that moment when the head of the family would take the lamb and very humanely and very quickly slaughter the lamb, the lamb really not knowing what happened. Not so with the lamb of God. Not so with Christ. Not only is humane treatment not going to happen, but he knows precisely why he's being tried and he knows precisely what's going to happen to him. And yet, like a lamb led to slaughter, he makes no protest, he makes no defense. And I'd like to walk through the fact that he made no protest at all. We examined his trials a couple of weeks ago, but they're worth revisiting. At his first trial, as recorded in John 18, this was an illegal middle-of-the-night trial before Annas, the father-in-law of the high priest. He questioned Jesus about his teaching. And apparently he's trying to get Jesus to say something that would be self-condemning. But John 18 says, Jesus said, I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? All those who have heard me, what I said to them, they know what I said. Jesus didn't defend himself in the least. He simply said to Annas, you've already heard everything I've been teaching. One of the officers punched Jesus. He hit him at this answer. And Jesus simply said, if what I said is wrong, say it's wrong. But if what I've said is right, why do you strike me? Again, Jesus isn't giving a defense of any kind. He's not, de- he's not defending his teaching. He's not defending his ministry. He just said, everything I've ever done is public record. At the second trial, Jesus is now taken to the high priest, Caiaphas. Now there's a bigger crowd that's begun to gather. Some of the scribes and the elders were there. It's still an illegal, unofficial gathering. They brought false witnesses forward who were willing to testify against Jesus. The problem is they couldn't think of anything to say. Well, finally, two of them came forward and said that Jesus had said, oh, I'll I'll destroy the temple and build it in three days. Well, obviously, Jesus couldn't be speaking of the actual temple. It took decades to build that thing and to renovate it. He's speaking of his own body. So finally, the high priest had some little tidbit, some little nugget here that he thought he could make stick. So he questioned Jesus about it. The Matthew 26 says, but Jesus remained silent the high priest questioned jesus directly tell us if you are the christ the son of god and if we harmonize the parallel accounts of mark 14 and matthew 26 jesus said you have said so i am but i tell you that from now on you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven now the high priest the spiritual leader of israel should have said we've found our messiah And he should have rejoiced and he should have exalted. But instead he had a big fit. He tore his robes and he cried blasphemy. While those around Jesus spit in his face and slapped him and and hit him with their fists and mocked him. And again, all Jesus did was give a truthful answer to a direct question. He noticed something that he's not doing. He's not pointing out that the trial is illegal. He's not protesting his treatment, and he's not proclaiming his innocence. 
There's a third trial that happens. Now it's dawn. The Sanhedrin, the Council of Jerusalem, has gathered now officially, and they question Jesus. If you are the Christ, tell us. Luke 22 records, but he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Well, actually, they heard it from their own lips. He just said, yeah, what you said. Again, what did he not do? Jesus, the totally innocent one, the totally sinless one, he offered no defense. He gets to his fourth trial, now the Roman trial before Pontius Pilate. As the Roman governor, Pilate couldn't have cared less about religious issues. The concern brought to him was that Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews, and that could pose a problem for a peaceful Roman occupation. So Pilate asked directly, are you the king of the Jews? And again, Jesus said, you have said so. He goes to a fifth trial before Herod Antipas. This is the, the ruler of Galilee, a northern province who happened to be in Jerusalem. Jesus was a resident of the northern province. So, so uh, Pilate thought, maybe I can foist this thing off on my compatriot here. Herod Antipas was excited to see Jesus. He thought maybe we would have some entertainment. Do a miracle. Do something really cool. Do that walking on water thing that we heard about. He questioned Jesus at some length, according to Luke 23, but he made no answer. So Herod and his soldiers mocked Jesus and sent him in mock king's clothing back to Pilate. And we get to his final trial before Pontius Pilate once again. Pilate didn't think Jesus was guilty of anything. But to avoid a riot from the crowd that was now gathered, he was desperate for Jesus to say something to defend himself because the crowd by now was shouting, crucify him, crucify him. So Pilate had Jesus flogged. The, his soldiers added to the mock king's clothing that Herod's men had put him in. They put a, a purple robe. They, they, they crushed a crown of thorns on his head. They struck him in the head with a reed. They spat on him. They knelt down in mock homage to him. And then after the robe soaked in blood from his ground up back had been soaked and began coagulating eventually fusing his bloody back with the robe they ripped it off of him maybe that would be enough for the crowd so Pilate asked Jesus where are you from Pilate was trying to trying to get one little thing some little defense by which he could release Jesus John nineteen nine. but Jesus made no answer Pilate tried to encourage Jesus to say something. John 19 records, Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And again, Jesus didn't defend himself, although he did take the opportunity to correct Pilate slightly. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Just a slight little correction there, bud. I'm here of my own will. And that was it. Six opportunities to defend himself, fully knowing what was going to happen to him and how did it all end. John 19 records, so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. 
So Jesus, instead of defending himself, he entrusted himself to God. God, incidentally, who was going to pour the wrath of all the sin of all who would come to faith in Christ right on him. And because of his innocence and because of his full payment made, Jesus trusted that he would be raised from the dead. In fact, 1 Peter 2.23 describes how Jesus was silent because he trusted in God. When he was reviled, that's verbal abuse. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was humiliated as you deserve and as I deserve. You might say, well, I don't deserve to be humiliated. How about having sinned against most holy God every day of your entire life and having that read aloud in front of all of creation? That's humiliating. And yes, you do deserve it. And yes, I deserve it. But Jesus stepped in. He was beaten as you deserved. He was humiliated as you deserved. And finally, Jesus died as you deserved. Verse 8 says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Isaiah here is giving commentary on, on his generation, his peers, the Jews, those who were living when he was living, those who were living when, when Jesus was crucified, what they thought was happening, or, or rather what they thought was not happening. This seemed to be a purposeless, a, a pointless death. He wasn't dying a hero's death for some noble purpose. He seemed to be dying a death that didn't have to be. And, and so Isaiah asked prophetically, did anyone understand that Jesus was being offered as a sacrifice by God, for God, unto God, as God? Did anyone understand? That it was by this act of sacrifice, this substitutionary death, that God would redeem and save his people Israel and save people from every nation on earth. Did anyone understand? No, they didn't. Instead, they walked by and they mocked him, they mimicked him, and they teased this dying man. Isaiah said he was cut off out of the land of the living. This is a verb that represents in the Bible a string of violence. It speaks of death hopelessness, and darkness. The same word is used in 1 Kings 3.25. Solomon said to the women who were fighting over one baby, divide, cut off the living child in two. Heman, the author of Psalm 88, describes the dead as, quote, those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. Jeremiah, speaking for himself and representing the hopelessness of Israel after Jerusalem has fallen in 586 B.C., he writes in Lamentations chapter 3, I have been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. Same word. I am cut off. I am hopeless. There is no hope. And a different word in Hebrew, but the same exact meaning. The prophet Daniel received a prophecy from the angel Gabriel that, quote, the anointed one, that is Christ, shall be cut off and shall have nothing. The irony that the one who created everything shall have nothing. But before Jesus could die physically, he would endure on the cross three hours of darkness. And in that time, there would be a mysterious exchange between 
him as sacrifice and God as judge in a holy and terrifying interaction from which we've been shielded. God the judge poured out his fury, his wrath, his righteous indignation against every single sin that you would ever commit. And in some way we can't understand God the Father poured onto his own son countless eternities of hell and judgment instead of onto us. And when Christ had received in his person the fullness of the wrath of God because the wages of sin is death, Matthew 27, 50 says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. What does it mean to be saved? It means to humbly and meekly acknowledge to God that you deserve to be treated as a fool, to be condemned as a lawbreaker, and to be excluded from God's kingdom. And it means to believe that Jesus Christ stepped in front of God's wrath for you, that he was beaten as you deserved, he was humiliated as you deserved, and he died as you deserved. And then because of Christ's death, Now you're treated as holy and righteous. Now you're treated as a law keeper. And now you're included in God's kingdom. That's what it means to be saved. And that's why we remember the death of Christ this evening. Would you pray with me briefly? Our Father, we come to you now in gratitude for the Lord Jesus Christ. The the death that he endured is unthinkable. We can't even begin to wrap our minds around what he endured for our sake. And Lord, all we can do is say thank you and and express our gratitude to you. And so, Lord, now as we come to the Lord's table, as we come to the communion table, the Lord's Supper, I pray, Lord, in this one little act that the Lord Jesus asked us to perform to remember his body and remember his blood, to remember his death. I pray, Lord, that you would be ever so present with us in a special and unique way. Amen. We're going to share the Lord's table here in just a moment. The Lord's table is not the Grace Bible Church table. It is the table for all who have received Christ as Savior and Lord. And and if you're not sure where you stand, can I just tell you that eating this this little piece of bread and drinking out a cup of juice isn't going to do anything for you. There's, There's no magic in them. It's simply a symbol of what the Lord Jesus asked us to do to remember his death, to remember his body, and to remember his blood. Let's begin in worship together.